All right, grab your Bibles, get your device. We're going to Matthew chapter 1 today. And we have been tasked this morning to kickstart a series on Christmas. And we're going to work together to get through the first 16 verses, maybe 17 if we can get there. And uh, Pastor Todd has put together a series that is designed uh, to get us dialed in and focused on Christmas so that the main thing is the main thing. And I think we all would agree we need that probably this year. And uh, Father, before we go any further, we, we come to you again. Uh, we recognize and confess our total dependency upon you. We know that only you can teach us and illuminate your word in ways that give understanding, ignite our imagination, increase our faith, renew our minds, transform our lives, and give us encouragement and hope. And I just believe there are many of us here today who could use some encouragement and hope. And Lord, we open our hearts and our minds to you. And in doing so, it is, it is our wish, it's our desire that we might in turn know what's on your heart and mind today. And we pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. 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 The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had Judah and his brothers. And Judah had Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez had Hezron, and Hezron had Ram, and Ram had Aminadab, and Aminadab had Nashon, and Nashon had Salmon, and Salmon had Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz had Obed by Ruth, and Obed had Jesse, and Jesse had David, the king. Now, David had Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon had Rehoboam, and Rehoboam had Abijah, and Abijah had Asaph, and Asaph had Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat had Joram, and Joram had Uzziah. And Uzziah had Jotham, and Jotham had Ahaz, and Ahaz had Hezekiah, and Hezekiah had Manasseh, and Manasseh had Amos, and Amos had Josiah, and Josiah had Jeconiah and his brothers at the time that they were led into captivity in Babylon. Now, Jeconiah had Shealtiel, and Shealtiel had Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel had Abiad, and Abiad had Eliakim, and Eliakim had Azor, and Azor had Zadok, and Zadok had Achim, and Achim had Iliad, and Iliad had Eleazar, and Eleazar had Methan, and Methan had Jacob, and Jacob had Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, the Christ. How'd I do? Yeah. <laughs> hey, how would you like to be in my shoes this morning? I mean, seriously. You know, uh, Todd, Todd asked me weeks ago, hey, you available December 3rd? I'm going to be out of town with you. And I just check my calendar, check with my wife. Yeah, yeah, I can do that. Then he gives me the passage, <laughs> right? I I'm, 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 will learn to be friends with this man as, as, we, as we go. But... Um, this morning, what, what, I, what I want to do is, is I want us to begin to grasp why it is that Matthew would lead his report on Jesus with, of all things, a genealogy, 
right? That is not the hook for a good novel. That is not going to get a click on an article. That is the longest hashtag ever, but you're not, you're not going there. And if we're, if we're all honest here, you know, genealogies are one of those quirky parts of Scripture that, like, for example, when, when you're working through the Bible in a year, you're going to read that in a year, and you're falling a few days behind, it is the best thing to hit a chapter where it's nothing but genealogies because you're going to skip right over it. You know you are. You're going to make up time with that because... Because you don't know, you don't know those names or many or any of those names. And, and when we see, you know, a genealogy, if it's like, if it's not your family tree, it's sort of like, okay. <laughs> and we just move on. But what I hope to do today is, is I, I hope to, to help us understand that as we continue in the, in the gospel of Matthew, focusing in on Christmas this, this genealogy that we just read had a powerful impact in the minds and the ears of the first listeners. Now, uh, we are a Bible church, therefore we take Bible reading and Bible study very seriously. And one of the things that I want to commend to you when you go to interface with the Word of God is we have to remember that the Bible was written for us, but not to us. The Bible was written for us and not to us. Now, I know that spooks some of you for me to say that. So let me just say, I believe that the Bible is 100% the inspired Word of God. It is infallible. It is living and active. It is the only sacred text that comes to us from the other side. It is profitable for our lives to walk in harmony with God, our Creator, to give us faith, to renew our minds, all those things. But the Bible was written for us and not to us. And therefore, sometimes we have to work and we have to hustle to somehow get enough context and to step in to the mindset, the space, the culture, even the ethnicity of the original target audience. And that's what this requires of us today. So. We're going to do a little uh, participation here, and uh, maybe we can work together. I, I, so we're going to start with, okay, the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Let's start with that. What, what do you know or think you know about this Gospel? It's, it's not prideful. Just shout it out if, you, if it's like, hey, here's one thing that I know about Matthew apart from other books in the Bible or the other Gospels. Anything? It was written, what, say it? All right, you guys are spot on. So the first thing that comes up is, okay, well, Matthew was written for, Jewish, uh, for a Jewish audience. How do you know that? That's a good answer. Here's something that you may not know. Matthew was originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic. It was then later translated into Greek. Every other book in your New Testament started in Greek because Greek was a widely spoken, widely read, widely, widely understood language. The Hebrew language, not so much. The Hebrew language was not widely spoken, not widely written, not, not widely understood. So that should tell us something that as it starts, there's a very selected audience, there's a very selected reader who would be able to interpret and hear it. 
The second thing that you find when you're working through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, if you're familiar with it, is, is Matthew will interrupt the flow of his storytelling just to point the listener, the reader, back to the Old Testament, back to the Hebrew Bible. He will, he will be showcasing something Jesus said or did, a miracle, something, and before he moves on, he will stop and he will hit us with this phrase that goes something like, that it might be fulfilled as was spoken by maybe the prophet Isaiah or wherever in the Old Testament. Some 15 times in 28 chapters he does that. And so that ought to give us another clue about as he is writing this gospel, he has some people very intentionally in mind. And so therefore he is taking them into passages that he hopes register somewhere in their memory. Now, uh, part of understanding, you know, the scripture as it comes to us today in the modern world in the 2020s, and not just understanding, it's not just understanding who the scripture was written to, even though it's for us, but it, it also is really wise for us to know something about the author. You know, there are 40 different authors in the Bible. I assure you that all of them were inspired by God to write what they did that ended up in the canon of scriptures. It was a, a sure, secure download that happened. But each of them write from their own personality bent, their own take on the world, their, their own temperament, and so forth. And so knowing not just who the original target audience was for, but knowing a little bit about the author also helps us very much to get what we need to get out of an awkward passage. So what do you know or think you know about Matthew? He was a tax collector. That's what he was known for, right? And, and we all know that in that time and era that, that tax collectors, they were some of the most beloved and respected <laughs> people in the culture. Their, uh, you know, parents wanted their, their boys to grow up to be, uh, not at all, right? Tax collectors were hated. They, they were despised. They, oh, you know, they were the people who enforced and collected the heaviest handed taxes and trib tribute by a Roman empire that ruled with no excuses, iron fist. And here is Matthew, a Jewish person who is a tax collector. That is, that is hard, right? Uh, Matthew's name, by the way, means gift of God. And so his parents named him with the hope that he would be a special gift from God to his family, to his community, to his, to his culture. And here he is as a tax collector. Uh, in those days when pious Jewish people were describing sinners and profane people, they would throw on the end and tax collectors, you know, just as an extra uh, dig with it. And so, you know, here you have this person who starts off as a most unlikely disciple. He graduates to be an apostle and he's a tax collector. And my question is, what goes on in a person's life to deliver them to that type 
of an adult career. Now, if you're familiar uh, with the series, popular series The Chosen, uh, they cast Matthew and script him in a very creative way. I love it. I love the idea of what they're, of what they're projecting there with him. But I, I have another idea about Matthew that, uh, that I just, I want to I wanna just put it out to you uh, for your consideration. Because um, human beings can be very predictable about how, how they will respond in certain environments and in certain circumstances. And if you remember, during the, the day and age of, of Matthew, when, when Jesus was born and Jesus you know, came to earth, uh, that was a, an unbelievable hard time to be a Jewish person in the land of Israel. Uh, if you take the Roman heavy-handed rule, the Gentile rule, even out of the situation, the leadership among the Israelite people was a clown show. It was highly partisan. You had two ruling classes that were continually trying to impose their way on everybody in the middle. And they would weaponize it in whatever way they wanted to. And you had a liberal, progressive class of leaders. And you had a very conservative, fundamental class of leaders. And the liberal and progressives, they were known as Sadducees and the Hellenists. And they were like... Man, don't get bogged down in your convictions over these archaic moral things. We need to step into the future, and we need to be less and less tied to that. On the other end of it were very conservative leaders who felt it was their duty to impose their morality on the people. They were trying to make Israel great again. you know. And so what happens is you get in the middle of that, and after 400 years of silence, there's a bit of skepticism. There's a bit of discouragement. You're tempted to deconstruct, man. Interestingly enough, you might find this interesting. The fastest growing demographic in our culture today consists of what's known as the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S. Uh, these are the people that during a census or during a survey, if you have the opportunity to check the box regarding religious affiliation, they choose none. No, right? And, and for years and years and years in, in our society, that composed like 8% of the population. You would have atheists and agnostics, they would check that. But that is growing to 30% now. 30%. And it's largely being populated by young adults. People who are looking at the traditional values and the chaos that are there with people saying, trust us, we can lead you. And they're saying, I don't think so. And so they tend to deconstruct. They tend to step away and say, what's the path of least resistance for me to have some form of quality of life and to be successful? And maybe that's you, you know, here this morning. Or maybe you have a child or a grandson, a granddaughter, a friend, a co-worker, somebody you're on campus with, somebody in the neighborhood, and, and you've seen the frustration and what that delivers a person to, to make some choices that when Matthew was five years old, there's no way he ever aspired to be a tax collector, right? But you can sort of step in to that position and find yourself 
really detached from what you were taught to trust in as a child. Now, uh, Matthew would have gone to rabbi school when he was about five years old. And uh, during that time, uh, they, would, they would blend mathematics and Hebrew because uh, Jewish people have this thing about the Hebrew language and mathematics. If you ever, if you ever look at it, it's all, there's a lot of cadence in there. There's a lot of overlap. It's super fascinating. And during Matthew's time, uh, you know, as, uh, as a child in, in, in school, there was not just, uh, you know, mathematics, but there was heavy religious education that would tie him to a zeal for his national identity. It would, they were methodical with it. And, and as, as Matthew would have been taught in those early years, part of what identifies a person as God's chosen people, the Israelites, go back to these select covenant promises that he would have learned in the Torah. Because right off the bat, you learn to read Hebrew, to speak Hebrew, and to write Hebrew from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. You would begin to memorize that. You'd have to choose a passage that begins with the first letter of your name and ends with the last letter of your name. And so it was, it was, it was drilled into them. And throughout, throughout the study of those early years, and man, you, we all know how impressionable little kids are, right? Especially this time of year, what they'll believe in, right? <laughs> Over and over and over and over again, little Matthew and his friends were reminded that the Creator God had initiated a rescue plan that started in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve, the first human beings, disobeyed and they sinned, they gave in to the tempter, in that moment, God had made a special promise of deliverance. He gave that to Adam and Eve. He said it right in front of Satan. It was, a set, it was a special sacred promise that we would call a covenant. And God made this covenant and he basically said there in Genesis chapter 3 that there would come someone from the woman's seed who would defeat Satan. Satan would wound him, but this person would crush the serpent's head. And there was a gender reveal in that, by the way. It would be a male. And, and Matthew would have learned as he moved forward in his reading of the Torah that there was another incredible Bible promise, a God-sacred promise called a covenant that showed up just after the flood. You know, the flood is, is uh, you know, Noah's Ark. We decorate our, our children's nurseries and everything with it. That was a violent act of judgment, y'all. You know, I mean, it was like, whoa, because humanity had, had, had just descended into this state of violence and wickedness. And God hit the reset button with the flood. And one man, his wife, his kids, their, their spouses, the Bible says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And young Matthew would have, would have learned that. Every, every Hebrew child would have learned that either in school or in synagogue. They would hear those stories repeated in the Torah. And there God gave another special covenant. A covenant that was 
symbolized by this rainbow, but in that covenant, God restores the dignity of humanity, of what it means to be an image bearer. And there's a promise there that God is going to create not just the redemption of mankind, but he is going to restore the earth to Eden. Now, by two of these covenants coming forth, there was, a, there was a new sort of precedence that was being set, and that is the ancient world learned to ratify a covenant in a bizarre way. Anytime a, a covenant, a sacred promise was given and agreed upon, in order to underscore the seriousness of it, there was a sacrifice. You know, uh, uh, something died, an animal died, that, that flesh was broken and torn and there was blood shed. That happened with Adam and Eve. And afterwards, before they were trying to clothe themselves with fig leaves, what happened at the end of the covenant there in Genesis 3? Clothing, animal skins, right? That same type of torn flesh and shedding of blood. And then here, when Moses, um, when Noah gets his precious covenant, the sacred promise from God, what do we find Noah doing? He is sacrificing. He's sacrificing to the Lord. Again, it's this, it's this tearing of, and the, of, of flesh. It's the shedding of blood. There's an animal sacrifice there. Now, we jump forward, and Matthew, again, would have been learning all of this as, an, as a younger child. All of his, of his, of his Jewish uh, classmates, all of their countrymen, they would, have been, they would have been learning this under the rabbi. You get to this, this third particular covenant, and it's found also in the book of Genesis. But there's a bizarre thing that's taking place here. And you guys will probably remember this. Mankind, once again, can't, we can't get out of our own way. We have, we have now degenerated again, and we have come up with the bright idea that we're going to build this a great massive tower, which was, a bit, which was really just giving God the finger and saying, hey, we got it. We don't need you, whatever. And there in Genesis 11, the Lord comes down, and it says that, that the Lord confused their language. You remember this? It was called the Tower of Babel. But God did it in a very methodical way. And we miss it because it happens in Genesis 10 prior to the description of the Tower of Babel. And it says in Genesis 10 that God had divided the people into 70 nations. He lists them right there. He said he divided them into 70 nations. And yes, according to the language that they spoke, but it also says according to the sons of God. And what a lot of scholars mean or think that means is that when God, you know, hit the scatter button and moved them out, he let them go on and continue to worship who they thought God ought to be in their own minds. These lesser gods. Some people would speculate this is this is part of the angelic realm that fell that fell and were continually trying to influence humanity away from God. So God said, OK, confuses their language. 70 nations set up according to the sons of God. But in that same space, God hits us with another covenant, another sacred covenant. And the third covenant coming through was given to an old dude and an old woman who didn't have kids. What were their names? Abraham and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah right? And in this covenant... This Abrahamic covenant, God promises to create a chosen nation out of this couple. This nation would have their own unique earthly territory. That's very important. This nation would be the people of the Most High God and have His blessing, provision, and lineage preservation. 
from this nation would all the families of the earth be blessed. The rescue and redemption of humanity would be achieved. And here again, at this, at this promise, at this covenant, it was ratified by, again, a bizarre sacrifice that entailed the death, the rending of flesh, the shedding of blood. God committed to it. Now, the story would continue and much of that young Matthew's learning in, in, in schooling, in elementary school, would center, of course, on the law of Moses. And, and, and that was a special covenant in and of itself where God imparted a system of, of regulations, of, of social guidelines, of religious guidelines that helped the people to understand how to be holy because their God was holy. You see, their God was altogether different than the other gods that the nation served. He was the most high God. And so what he did is he brought those, those people out of the land of Egypt to their promised land is he had a strategic pit stop where he introduced himself to them and then he clarified who he was through these precepts that allowed them to live out wise principles that were always pointing to who he was as a person, his love, his governance. Sometimes we want to overthink it, but Matthew would have told you even at a young age, it's like 10 simple rules. The first four bring us into vertical alignment with God, our creator, and the next six teach us how to live in love and harmony on a horizontal plane with each other. That's the Ten Commandments. That was God's design for his people to adapt that type of living so that the door was always open for these other nations to recognize the one true God and to come in, to be invited, to assimilate. The scripture moves on. The storytelling moves on. Matthew would have learned all of this stuff moving through the Torah. And then you end up actually over into the historical books of the Bible, not the law. And there you come into a study time of the kingdom where Israel had been established in the land of Israel. And there we are introduced to the greatest king that Israel ever knew. Who are we talking about? David, right? We're talking about David. And, and during David's time, he was a very, very flawed man, right? But catch this. David was never an idolater. Never. God said, this is a man after my own heart. And regardless of David's mistakes and his propensity to make mistakes, God came to him and chose this point, this time, to again make another very sacred promise that would have a lot to do again with the Jewish people. And that promise is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and God promises that this, this, this coming person that was, that was guaranteed all the way back in Genesis 3, he would be a descendant of David to reign on the throne. Now, at about this time, there's a bit of a code word that starts to be adopted for this promised deliverer, this rescuer. Uh, they, would, they would flesh that out in the centuries to come, but this person would be known as the Messiah, the Messiah, 
Now, in the Greek, that's translated the Christ. That's how we see it in our Bibles. But, but this was a very special covenant that gave even more clarity about who this person would be and how he would make things right. Uh, he would reign on David's throne. And here again, there was this amazing ratification of this covenant. Now, it didn't happen immediately, but in the years to come, David would bring the ark to the city of Jerusalem. That's the holy city. And David's son Solomon would create the permanent structure of the tabernacle. I mean, of the temple. Up to that, it had been a tabernacle. But he had given a concrete place for people to come and worship their God. And at that time, when the sacrifices were happening and the, and the, and the, and the flesh was torn and the blood was flowing, you should read it. God manifests his presence in this Shekinah glory that just blew everybody away. It was, again, another manifestation, another confirmation. I have a plan. This is not over. I'm going to redeem mankind and I'm going to return earth to Eden. Now, those sort of things Matthew would have learned along with every other of his countrymen. Those sort of things would have been injected in them. They would have been not just in school time, but in synagogue. It was their hope that this resilient group of people clung to. And they could, they could see all of those things and all of those special promises. And they knew that all of those covenants were ratified in this very specific way. But there remained one covenant that Matthew would have learned in his childhood that it was a promise, but it hadn't been ratified yet. And this covenant was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And the prophet Jeremiah in, in, in Jeremiah 31 makes this incredible promise on God's behalf. It's, it's actually, it was, it was first initially iterated by the prophet Isaiah some years before. But God promises a coming day where through this king... A new covenant would be established and a new, a new covenant was to be unlike the one which Israel had broken in that it would guarantee the perpetual forgiveness of sin, the cleansing from sin, internal renewal of the heart, and an intimate, intuitive knowledge of God. That was the promise, but it hadn't been ratified yet. And what Matthew was preparing to do was to tell the good news that that promise had been ratified. Because Matthew was in the upper room as they celebrated Passover with the Lord Jesus that last time. And at the end of that Passover meal, Jesus passed around the bread. And what did he say about that bread? This is what? This is my body, which is what? broken for you. And after that, he passes the, the wine around. And as he took that wine, he said, this wine is what? Blood. My blood. The new covenant, right? Everybody in that room, including Matthew, boom, light bulb goes off, right? This is the fulfillment that he was looking for. So when, when Matthew comes out of the gate with a genealogy, and it is written in Hebrew, 
And he knows that the story that he is about to unpack is going to go to a selective group of people. You guys, do you remember when you came to Christ and it's like it all started to come alive in your head and you had to tell people, you had to tell people. And most of the time, the people we're determined to tell are the people who are still living in the darkness that we came from. And so we tend to go right back into that space to grab as many people as possible to lead them into the light of God's kingdom. And, and that is exactly what we're going to see in the weeks ahead that Matthew is setting to do. Now, in this chapter, as we would read further, and we're not today, the interesting thing that happens is that Matthew, from this genealogy, then he goes into the nativity story. And let's take the first verse and the 16th verse, just here for a minute. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, knowing what we know now, that, that probably means something, right? And if you jump down to verse 16, where it discloses that Jacob had Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ, the Messiah. Do you know what Matthew is getting ready to tell right out of the gate about the Christmas story? Look, look down on it a second there. What's the, what's the Old Testament verse that, verses that he refers to there? Right? What did Isaiah say? Behold a, behold a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son. Now you and I, that's right over our heads. But in my understanding, I'll keep this PG, in order for a virgin to have a baby, that hymen's got to tear and bleed. And it's like, what? I'm telling you, that would have been, again, another boom, light bulb moment for people who were so oriented about covenant, so oriented about the rending of flesh and the shedding of blood. Uh, Matthew is about to bring it to his fellow Jewish countrymen. And maybe some of them had already come to the saving faith in Christ, you know? What, what was it about Jesus when he strolls up to Matthew at his tax booth and says, follow me. You know, two words, a simple sentence, and it ignited this childlike faith that had been buried under skepticisms for years and years. And it just awakened him and he just went. And probably some of the people who were, who were prepared and poised to read Matthew's report on Jesus, the gospel, the good news of Matthew, that, that was them too. They had, they had believed upon Jesus. And so they were ready to get their minds blown by all the confirmation of who this Messiah truly is. But I suspect that for a lot of them, they were in a place where again, 
they too needed to understand that the invitation to follow me was not just for a select few, but it was for everybody. And how would they understand that unless they were directed back to their point of origin as an ethnicity, Abraham? And how could they trust in just that alone unless they had someone finally to believe in? Someone finally to believe in. You know, I, I, I'll just be real quick. It's like the desperation of humanity, even in a democratic society, is revealed when we're willing to sign over authoritarian leadership and dictatorship. That's not a political statement. That's the cry of the heart to come and save us. And Jesus' very name, Yeshua, means what? God save us. So, let's think about this together. Now, not as 21st century Americans, Christians, but I want you to put your head, draw your focus to listening to the genealogy of Matthew by way of an informed first century Jewish person. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, Yeshua, God save us, the Messiah, the descendant of David, the descendant of Abraham. Now, Abraham had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had Judah and his 12 brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Judah had Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, that's a story. And if you don't know it, like, you know, like most of Genesis reads like, you know, a trailer park novel. I mean, it's, you know, it's, you know. And, uh, Tamar was a very wounded and discarded person. And Judah was one of the biggest hypocrites you're ever going to see in the Bible. But Judah had Perez. And Perez had, I'm, I'm sorry, Perez. And, Herez, and Perez had Hezron. And Hezron had Ram, and Ram had Aminadab, and Aminadab had Nashon, and Nashon had Simon, Salmon, and Salmon had Boaz by Rahab. Well, okay, she was not a descendant of Abraham, and what was her occupation? She was a prostitute before she believed on Yahweh, before she believed in the great I Am. Now, um, Boaz had Obed by Ruth. And Ruth, again, she was a Moabite. If you want to read some discouraging scripture, the Moabites came from Lot in an incestuous relationship with his daughter. They were like, uh, you know, really like cringeworthy as you'd talk about it. But yet here is this person, you know, wounded, living under genera generational curses, who is again, finds themselves in the storyline of God's love. So, Boaz had Obed, and Obed had Jesse, and Jesse had David the king. 
Now, David had Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's a story, right? And it's not just adultery. It is murder and cover-up and hardness. But nevertheless, Solomon had Rehoboam. I think that's the biggest knucklehead in Scripture because he split the kingdom. <laughs> and Rehoboam had Abijah, and Abijah had Asaph, and Asaph had Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat had Joram, and Joram had Uzziah. Now, Uzziah reigned at the time of Isaiah, and Isaiah gave more prophecies than any other prophet concerning the Messiah, the Christ, the conqueror, the rescuer. And Uzziah had Jotham, and Jotham had Ahaz, really bad dude and a wicked queen wife named Jezebel, right? But they had a son, Hezekiah, who was a good king, who restored the faith of Israel. And Hezekiah had Manasseh, <laughs> a bad king, right? A wicked king that led Israel astray again. And Manasseh had Amos, and Amos had Josiah, a teenage king, who, again, his heart was toward God, and he restored the faith of people. But it was short-lived. Josiah had Jeconiah, and Jeconiah was the last king who reigned over the entirety of the southern kingdom as he and his brothers and part of the kingdom were first led away into captivity. There was a remnant of Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, but they were never really monarchs. And with Zerubbabel came the end and destruction and the displacement of the Israelites from their home territory into Babylon. And so from Abia to El Eliakim to Azor to Zadok to Achim to Iliad to Eleazar to Mathen to Jacob, these are of a lineage of a king and none of them reigned. None of them had any positions of authority. And you end up with a carpenter in Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth, they asked? Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, right? Of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now, I, I would be so interested, <laughs> you know, as to what part of that genealogy now grabs you. What part of that genealogy now, it's like, oh, wow. If, if I would have been the, the, the targeted recipient of that, I'd have been all in at that point. I got I to gotta hear more. I've got to read more. And you would be more than just curious, you would probably be hungry. Yes? You would, you would jump in on it. And so that is, that is a bit of the background that we're talking about here this morning. And, and so, you know, it's one of those things where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to juxtapose something here, and then I'm going to give us uh, maybe just three things if, you, if, you're, if you're taking notes along with the, with the handout. I'm going to give us maybe three things that we can pull forward into our, our 21st century context here today. But I, I'm very thankful, 
you know, for the, for the country that, that I've been born into, I'm very thankful for the privileges that we have here. I'm very thankful for the Judeo-Christian history of the United States of America. And for those people who are, are really uh, patriotic and they, and they love this nation and they want to continue to serve, uh, part of that starts with the heritage. And so I figure there's probably people in this room, but there are definitely people who can uh, you know, really step into the fullness of their identity as American citizens by naming off the different presidents. Right? They can do that. They can tell you the story behind every president. They can tell you the, the, the context of what was going on in the nation at that time. They can tell you the good, the bad, you know, and where, where it was. That's a, that, is a, that is a part of, of, of you know, patriotism that allows us to, to be good citizens. But what, what the Bible is giving us here is the confirmation of a king who offers us an eternal kingdom. A confirmation of this is the king we have been waiting for, who offers us not just entrance into his domain, but will give us eternal life. And so if, if we're going to now jump back into 2023, knowing what we're discovering about just this genealogy, the first thing that I would tell you if you're, if you're taking notes there, filling in the blank, is the most high God is believable. If God said it, you can believe it. If God has pronounced through these sacred covenants again and again and again, I am not only restoring my union with humanity, I am not only taking the earth back to Eden, I am sending my son, 1 John 5, 18, to destroy the works of the devil. I like that. And one of the best commentaries that you'll find that Matthew would have known as a child is there's this great story of the Exodus and there's this massive group of people, the Israelites, that are making their way to the promised land. And there's this covering, there's this anointing upon them that the, that the area countries, you know, part of these 70 nations, they can, they can see it, they can sense it. And so they hired this prophet, his name was Balak, to curse them, right? And so they offer him all kinds of money and he keeps refusing and they finally get him out to the site where he can just sort of look over part of the encampment. And here's what Balak confessed when he said, I, I can't do what you're asking me to do. He said, he said, God, Yahweh, is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? He said, when you see these people, the Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. Or Israel didn't have a physical king at that time. But that is the space, the headspace of belief that they were coming into. Uh, let me tell you, let me assure you, the promises of God are yes and amen. And if there is something in Scripture for you to cling to, believe it. By faith, believe it by faith. You can trust God. The second thing that I would offer you this morning is that God offers us the same promise of redemption through Jesus Christ. Therefore, you can trust it with your life. The, the, the promise of redemption that Matthew is showcasing to the Jewish people, God's chosen nation, is offered 
to us as well. That goes back to the promise of Abraham that through him all peoples would be blessed. Everybody. Some of the first powerful testimonies that you will recall in the scripture happened in the book of Acts where uh, Peter and John were just lighting up the temple area. You know, they, there was a guy there that was, that was, uh, that was lame. He couldn't walk and, and uh, he's asking for money. And do you remember what they said? They said, look at us. And he fixed, he looked at them and he said, they said, we don't have any silver and gold for you, but what? In the name of Jesus, boom, get up and walk. And the dude, they were lighting it up. And when they were, when they were cornered about what they were doing, here's what they said. There is no salvation from anywhere else. No other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus the name of Jesus is offered to you and me today. It doesn't matter if you're in a place of doubt, if you've deconstructed. It doesn't matter if you feel far away from what you once believed to be true. The same promise of redemption is offered to us today. The third thing that I would suggest us this morning, based on this genealogy, is that there is no sin you are guilty of, or evil that has been forced upon you that can disqualify you from God's love when you believe in Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That genealogy includes some very nefarious people and people who are very wounded by sin. Hands down, the favorite, the, the most widely known and popular verse in the Bible is like totally a Christmas verse, but we never use it. Right? Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Father, this morning, as we, as we set our hearts toward Christmas and as we reflect on what it is that you have done in your goodness, in your love, in the way that you have said it and it has come true. I pray this morning for those who are here. I pray for those who are listening online, who are watching online. I pray for those who maybe will come into this recording later that they would know in their hearts that Jesus Christ, that baby in a manger, was given to us for our redemption, for the forgiveness and cleansing of sin. And if that's you this morning, in your heart, reach out to God. In your heart, make this a, a, a prayer if not for the first time, maybe, maybe a new time for you to confess that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, that you believe in your heart, you're willing to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Father, help us this year more than other years, to really, really step in 
to the headspace of Christmas that we might be ambassadors to the world around us. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.